The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a real honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Wayne Paselli. He is CEO and President of the Humane Society of the United States, which is the largest animal protection organization in the United States. Prior to taking the reins at the Humane Society, Mr. Paselli has served for nearly 10 years as the organization's chief lobbyist and spokesperson. He received a bachelor's degree in the areas of history and studies in the environment from Yale University in 1987. He has testified before the U.S. House and Senate committees on a wide range of animal protection issues, on subjects relating to the mistreatment of downer cows, banning of canned hunting, securing adequate funding for the Animal Welfare Act, combating cockfighting, dogfighting, and managing chronic wasting disease, among others. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and more. And I really like the website, www.humanesociety.org, for keeping up with Mr. Paselli's blog on important issues regarding animals, animal welfare, and our food system. So without further ado, welcome, Mr. Paselli. Melinda, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad to be with you, and uh, your focus on food is so important for the country. Well, you have done so much in terms of waking the public up to some horrific animal treatment that goes on on industrial farms, and that's really where I want to focus our conversation today. For example, you talk about the very small battery cages in which chickens are kept in and the horrific gestation crates. And through the work of your organization, I believe, we really have seen changes in what the food industry is doing, but we have a long way to go. So let me just start out with asking you how you got into this line of work. Well, I wrote a book called The Bond, Our Kinship with Animals, Our Call to Defend Them. And in that book, I argue that we humans have an instinctive connection to animals. And we see this manifest in so many kids and their behavior, their fascination with animals, and I go on to explain that and why that exists in us, but there is no need to invent a concern for animals. We all have it to one degree or another, and when I was a kid, I had it in spades. I loved animals. I was fascinated by them. I wanted to learn about them, and as I got older, I began to study the full sort of range of human activities toward animals and found that so many ways we were a pet-loving, wildlife-watching society, but we also did so many terrible things to animals. In the fur trade, puppy mills, factory farming, cosmetic testing on animals, bullfighting, dogfighting, cockfighting. And when I learned about these things, I was horrified, and I decided I didn't want to be a bystander. I wanted to do something about it. So when I was a college student, I, I started an animal advocacy group at the end of my sophomore year in college, and I really have been kind of going gangbusters ever since then and kind of found my way into a writing job for a magazine in the field, and then I was uh, hired by a national advocacy group called the Fund for Animals, and 
I've been at the Humane Society of the United States now for, for two decades, and it's been a real honor and privilege to serve here, and especially so as, as president and CEO for the last decade. So what would you say have been some of your greatest challenges leading this organization? Well, you know, we take on the biggest, toughest fights. We are an organization that's about protecting all animals, and we're the largest hands-on provider of services to animals through our animal rescue team, our vet programs, our street dog programs, our wildlife rehab centers, you know, so many different things that we do to touch animals and typically to, to relieve them from crisis situations or situations of distress. But I think our greatest purpose, our most important purpose, is to prevent cruelty and to attack institutionalized forms of cruelty. So I think our biggest challenge is taking on these industrialized farms, uh, cosmetic testing, steel clubbing that is defended by the government of Canada, the puppy mill industry, you know, really a very um, emphatic campaign to end dogfighting and cockfighting, not just in the United States but around the world, horse slaughter. I mean, we're whenever there's a very big, tough fight for animals, you can count on HSUS to be there. And, Melinda, as you said, I mean, I think we've moved the needle on every one of these issues, every one of them. And, you know, whether it's puppy mills or dog fighting or factory farming, it's a different circumstance now because of HSUS's concerted strategic action. But as you say, there's a long way to go. We can't rest on our laurels. So many animals are at risk. So many animals are caught up in these industries. And we've got to do something about it. And we see a pathway forward. We see a pathway forward that's not just good for animals, but good for the whole of society. That's right. And, you know, I think one of the things that I see in the media is a large amount of propaganda really targeted against your work and those of us who try to promote animal welfare. And I thought maybe we could do a little myth-busting on the show. But one of the myths is that, oh, you know, the Humane Society, all they want to do is they want to outlaw animal agriculture and make everyone a vegetarian, which is really laughable. Yes, yes. You know, when you look at the history of major social movements in the country, you know, whether it was women's suffrage, whether it was civil rights in the in the South in the 1950s, I mean, the folks who were at the cutting edge of these social reform movements were mocked. The groups were often infiltrated. There was an attempt to marginalize their thinking, to cast them as extremists. That's exactly what goes on with HSUS and our work. I, I think our work happens to be, you know, right in the heart of American values. No one in this country uh, should be defending animal cruelty. And what we're doing at HSUS is simply logically extending and applying anti-cruelty principles. And we have never said that our goal is to end animal agriculture. If you look at our anti-factory farming campaigns, it's about making the animals' lives better and and eliminating particularly egregious practices. And the, the set of practices that we've focused our principal energy on has been extreme confinement, battery cage confinement for laying hens, gestation crate confinement for breeding sows, and, and confinement in stalls, male calves in stalls, for the veal industry. These are very sensible reforms. Animals who have legs or wings should be allowed to use them and move them. And uh, I think the American public, while maybe at the start of our campaign, didn't 
uh, quite fully appreciate the campaign now. The vast majority of members of the public do, and they see that this is just a uh, an ugly era in industrialized agriculture, and that we can do better than this. That that we should expect more from farmers. That there are many, many thousands and thousands of farmers who are successfully conducting animal agriculture without resorting to these extreme practices, and that it's beneath us as a society to treat living beings in this way by immobilizing them for essentially their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as a dietitian, a lot of times people will ask me, well, you know, what do you eat? Do you eat meat? And I always respond by saying, I do eat meat, but I would never eat meat from an industrialized system where the animal suffered So the animal should have a very pleasant life until that very last day when it makes the ultimate sacrifice so that I can eat. And I think that if more of us looked at, just asked very basic questions like, where does my food come from, really? And how was it raised? Under what conditions? I think we could really make better choices in terms of feeding ourselves and our families, our communities. But the problem is, is that I think a lot of times, how animals are raised are kept hidden. And so, for example, the ag-gag laws have been very troublesome to me because I always think that one of the things I say about good food is that it has nothing to hide. And what these ag-gag laws do is that they prevent the consumer from seeing how their food was produced. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of those ag-gag laws and maybe the Humane Society's position. Well, I think that you set it up just right, Melinda, that we're often deeply disconnected from many industries using animals, and that's very much true for animal agriculture. You know, these supply chains run, you know, hundreds or even thousands of miles long. Many of the animals are in warehouses, and you can't see how the animals are treated. And we hear a lot of false assurances from folks in industry, whether it's their press releases or it's the packaging of the meat, that tries to assure us that the animals are humanely treated. And when you see what happens on these farms, and I've been to these farms all across the country, it is really unpleasant to see what the animals are going through. I mean, six or eight hens confined in a cage with each hen having less space than than an eight-and-a-half by 11 sheet of paper, breeding sows kept in a two-foot-wide cage that simply enables them to take one step forward and one step back, for many months on end, you know, and when we have exposed this and tried to show the public, this is what is happening, and you as a consumer should be thinking about this and making conscious food choices, and if you do, you can turn these systems around and you can do better by animals. The response of some within the agribusiness sector has been to try to forbid us from taking photographs or video of what happens on these farms or for an animal welfare advocate to apply for a job at these uh, large-scale operations or even at slaughterhouses. This has been a very, very big movement. Within the last two years, we've seen more than 20 states consider the so-called ag-gag bills to criminalize uh, basically picture-taking or getting a job at these facilities if you're an animal welfare advocate. Fortunately, we've defeated all of them within the last two years, but but one, that was Idaho, which did pass the bill. But prior to that, six states, including Missouri, uh, did adopt ag-gag statutes, uh, most of them about 15 years ago. And this is a troubling development, and what it really tells the public, I think, 
is that some folks within agriculture have something to hide. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us as educators and advocates for animals and a healing food system that we do provide more transparency. If you ask consumers, what do you want in your food system? Do you want more transparency or less? I think they'd say more. They should, and they also, uh, once they realize that there are essentially no laws to protect animals on the farms, no state laws, no federal laws to speak of, no federal laws on humane slaughter of poultry, which represent 95% of all the animals slaughtered. I mean, if the government's not looking out and the industry is trying to exclude animal advocates from documenting what's occurring and then showing it to the public, we're basically putting industry entirely in charge of these animals. And frankly, we feel that in many respects they have failed when it comes to the test of animal welfare. I mean, just the idea of this sort of intensive confinement which wasn't really done out of malice, but more efficiency, where they really forgot that they were dealing with animals. They forgot that these are, are beings that, you know, have behavioral and psychological needs that need to be attended to. It's not the old days when we just thought of animals as things we could use whenever and however we want. We are living in a new era. And frankly, we're also living in a new era, you know, from a legal perspective as well, that Every state in the country has penalties for malicious cruelty. But why is it okay to do things to animals in an agricultural setting that it wouldn't be proper to do to other animals in other settings? I think what we're asking for is a little bit of additional moral consistency when it comes to our treatment of animals. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Mr. Wayne Paselli. He is the CEO and president of the Humane Society of the United States, the largest animal protection organization in the U.S. I love the way you talk about the values and the moral acts, the ethical acts, and the way we view animals. And yes, just because we eat them doesn't mean we have to force them to suffer prior to killing them. And I wonder, you know, in talking about some of the root causes of the problems, yes, efficiency, that drive for efficiency, how do we speak about this in a way to convince people that we don't need to treat animals so poorly or pack them into these horrible confined situations in order to still have an affordable food supply? Yeah, I I actually... I think that the motivation was efficiency, but I don't think that's been the effect. I think that these uh, large-scale farms have been inefficient from the perspective of of how they function within a society that has important values. And animal cruelty and opposition to animal cruelty is one of those values. I don't think this is a good system when it comes to animal welfare. I don't think it's been a good system when it comes to manure management and the massive volumes of waste that go untreated and into our streams and other waterways, also into the air, into the ground. Many folks who live near these large-scale industrial farms don't like them. Uh, They putrefy the air. They drive down property values. We've got all sorts of food safety issues, the overuse of antibiotics for non-therapeutic reasons. Uh, we've seen the unraveling of rural communities. I mean, during the era of factory farming, we've seen a huge decline in the number of family farms in this country. We've lost 91% of pig farms, 88% of dairy farms. We've lost well more than 95% of egg-laying uh, hen operations in this country. This has not been a success story 
except in the narrowest metric of driving down the price of certain animal products for consumers, but seeing those costs passed on in other ways beyond the cash register. Enormous federal subsidies to the agriculture industry, enormous public health costs, enormous costs in terms of environmental despoilation, and this is an incalculable cost, but the the mistreatment of billions of animals uh, who are living in extreme confinement circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I love about your website is that it has some information about media and propaganda. And I'm sure because you've been working in the lobbying area, you recognize how important communication is. And our words and the way we frame different topics can really work for or against us. And I love the fact that you've got resources for teachers that help students understand how they are manipulated, how their thinking and actions are manipulated simply by the language. And I wonder if you could give some examples of ways that we can use the language to benefit our cause. Well, you know, we're in a war of ideas here. I mean, the old ideas really are that animals don't matter much at all. That was the notion that was advanced by many different folks within various sectors of what I call the animal use economy. And for a lot of years, they told us animals don't matter, they don't think, they don't feel. Those ideas have been deeply discredited, and now what they're trying to do is capture animal welfare language. They're saying that they're actually exhibiting proper animal welfare, that you know you can't have successful agriculture unless the animals are well treated. You know, unfortunately, the reality is You can do a lot to animals, and they will still be productive. They will still reproduce, and they will also grow. I mean, you can keep animals in lifelong confinement and effectively immobilize them, but they will still grow, and they will still reproduce. So I I do think that that framing is very important, and one of the things that, that we talk about is a very basic sensibility of opposition to animal cruelty. You know, you don't need a Ph.D., you don't need to be an expert in animal behavior to know that animals built to move should be allowed to move. You don't need to be a lawyer to know that cruelty to animals is not acceptable. So, you know, our critics try to say that gestation crates are maternity pens. I mean, euphemisms have often been used to try to soften the perceptions of some really terrible practices. And I also think language has been used to try to objectify or commoditize animals, you know, by calling them units of production in a factory farm setting rather than animals, or in a research laboratory calling them tools for research, or, you know, in some other setting, game to be harvested. These are terms that disassociate us from animals, and You know, frankly, if you look at some of the literature about how slaves were referred to in the antebellum South, they were referred to as livestock. They talked about the slaves as commodities and things, and it was one of the ways that we emotionally distance ourselves when we're involved in some form of exploitation of some group that we're doing something terrible to If you turn them into a thing rather than a being, it really paves the way for you to take these actions that are at odds with the well-being of these individuals. So that's been a big part of 
of what we talk about. And I think, you know, you hit it on the head. We're very far removed from what's going on with animals. You can live your life in so many parts of this country and not be directly connected to violence against animals in a confinement agriculture setting or with fur, with clubbing of seals or so many different things that we do. And I think what we're trying to do at HSUS is connect people to what's going on and ask them to honor the standards that they know from a common sense perspective are the right and proper ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was recently reading Ted Genoway's book called The Chain, and we were talking about how the individuals that who work in these industries are so mistreated and the environments are so foul that they are more likely to mistreat animals almost as a way of rebelling and having some power in a system where they themselves feel powerless. So I I think that, yes, we must treat animals humanely, but I, I think that this problem is so far-reaching in terms of, you know, going up the river and finding out where and how did this behavior start in the first place. Yeah. You know, really, when when we talk about mistreatment of animals, it's really a misuse of power. You know, we humans have so much power over other creatures. I mean, we we are the lords of the animals. And when you have that kind of power, when there's this sort of asymmetry, the question is, do you treat that power as a matter of responsibility, or do you treat power as license and do whatever you want? And I think whether we think about our religious traditions, whether they're biblical traditions or or traditions within other major non-Christian religions, all of them suggest that we should be merciful toward animals and show decency. And in terms of our 225-year-old country and the founding principles of it, you can see that we've become more civilized and more transparent and more humane as a society. I mean, we recognize civil rights. We've given women more rights. We have uh, dealt with issues like child labor. I mean, we did some pretty bad stuff in the history of this country, but what has made our country so great is that we've confronted these problems and we've remedied them through the political process and through other appropriate channels for driving social reform. Animals are part of this continuum. If we were to become a more decent and civilized society, as I think all of us want, We've got to do better when it comes to animals, and that means taking a look at how animals are treated in many different sectors of the economy, and that includes agriculture. And it doesn't mean ending agriculture. You know, we have 10 agriculture councils and in different states at HSUS. These are farmers who are card-carrying members of HSUS, farmers and ranchers, who say that, you know, they raise animals, but they insist that the animals be treated humanely. That's the sort of middle ground that we need to settle on in this country. I think that's brilliant to highlight these individuals, these farmers, who can say, I am a card-carrying member. I care about the animals I raise. So other farmers can see them as role models. Absolutely. And it's so much a part of the strategy to say, oh, we don't want to make any changes, or we don't want to make the changes that you're suggesting on extreme confinement. So we're just going to characterize you as being against all animal agriculture. And I think it pops that balloon when you have farmers speaking up on behalf of HSUS saying, hey, 
you know, I'm committed to animal agriculture. It's my livelihood. It's my way of life. It's part of my ethos. But, you know, part of my my ethos is I want to treat the animals well. You know, our the head of our, our Nebraska Agriculture Council, a rancher from central Nebraska, has about 1,200 cattle, uh, Kevin Fulton. He said his goal is to make sure that his animals have only one bad day in their life, that they are going to be slaughtered, that is going to be, you know, very frightening, and it's going to cause distress to the animal, but that every day before that, he wants to make sure that they are well cared for. He wants to create an environment that's good and healthy for them. That's the sort of notion that I think, you know, the average American who eats meat can get behind, and that's the sort of notion that we want to advance. Yeah, he's a terrific role model. Well, we should probably take a couple of minutes to identify some of your successes and some of the food providers who have taken positive steps forward. And I'm assuming that I know your blog is a great way to keep up with how industry has changed. And I think it's also a great way to identify those who are good players and those who are not. So would you like to say a little bit about some of your successful campaigns? Sure. Well, you know, we've had a lot of successful political campaigns on ballot measures, Prop 2 in California to stipulate that veal calves, breeding sows, laying hens should have the opportunity to stand up, lie down, turn around, and and freely extend their limbs. We've had successes in a lot of domains, but, you know, I think you rightly note that a lot of our corporate campaigns, we have worked with the biggest food retailers in the United States and the world they are really starting to incorporate animal welfare thinking in their business practices, and they're making changes in their supply chain to make things better for animals. So with gestation crates, these small metal cages that confine the sows so severely, more than 60 major food retailers from McDonald's to Burger King to Cracker Barrel to Applebee's to Costco have said they're going to phase out these crates, and, and they're not going to buy pork from operators who use those crates over time. They're phasing them in. The same is happening with egg-laying hens. Just within the last few weeks, we've seen the biggest food service providers in the United States, Compass Group, Aramarks, and Sodexo, say that all of the eggs that they purchase, both whole eggs and liquid eggs, are all going to come from cage-free operations. This is a billion eggs between these companies, and that's going to get 3.5 million hens out of extreme confinement when those policies are are implemented in full. The veal industry, as a consequence of pressure that we applied, is converting its entire industry away from crates. Just a few years ago, most male calves were crated. Now 80% are out of crates, and by 2017, the industry says it will convert 100%. So these are big, big gains. Uh, They've happened almost all in the last decade and most of them have occurred in the last three or four years. We're at a moment when the public is waking up, consumers are driving these corporate behaviors, and we're seeing businesses you know, really starting to reflect the values of our society. Well, Mr. Paselli, we are out of time. I'm going to direct our listeners to your website, which is www.humanesociety.org. We'll provide a link on our website for action steps. I loved your charge to consumers to lead the charge to make these changes within the food and agricultural industries. 
We've been speaking with Mr. Wayne Pacelli. He took office in June of 2004 as the president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, the largest animal protection organization in the U.S. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most importantly, I want to thank you again, Mr. Pacelli, for leading this charge to really help us have a humane and healthful food system. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 